Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Live from Dublin at Vicker Street, it's the West Wing Weekly. Thank you so much. I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. By the way, love Dublin. Super, super psyched to be here. I've had a few days here with my wife, the lovely Melissa, who's on premises somewhere. Uh, Love the literary vibe that permeates the city. Love the culture. I like pub culture. Enjoy the drinking. And the music. We've only been here for a couple days, so we haven't been to many, but I do want to thank the proprietors of Toners and the Palace and Nesbitt and Doheny and the playwright and the Horseshoe Bar at Shelburne and Mary's and O'Donohue's and Stag's Head and the bar at the Marion Hotel in particular. (laughs) Back on topic. Today we're talking about Season 4, Episode 20, Evidence of Things Not Seen. The teleplay is by Aaron Sorkin. The story by Eli Addy and David Handelman. This episode was directed by Christopher Missiano. It first aired on April 23rd in the year 2003. In this episode, it's the vernal equinox, and CJ's trying to stand an egg on end. Matthew Perry guest stars as Joe Quincy, a lawyer applying for Ainsley Hayes' old job in the counsel's office, but his interview with Josh gets interrupted by a shooting in the press briefing room. It's the third potentially terror-related incident in one day, so the Secret Service crashed the West Wing and everyone's stuck there. The staff keep trying to have a friendly poker game, and Leo and the president are trying to recover a U.S. spy plane that crashed into Russia. By the way, that's not a synopsis, but an artisanally crafted renopsis. (laughs) 
Also, to note, this episode was submitted as part of the West Wing's Emmy win for Outstanding Drama and for Bradley Whitford's Emmy nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And worth noting... <laughs> wow. You've really got a hometown crowd. <laughs> he didn't win that year. <laughs> the closest I'll ever get to winning an Emmy is when Brad doesn't win. <laughs> Joining us today to discuss this episode is a very special guest. Please join us in welcoming Richard Schiff. That was lovely. Thank you. I just came for the Guinness, so I'm going to go. I heard an expression uh, at a pub, which is appropriate here because you guys are so raucous. I'm as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. And, uh, and I'm going to have a Guinness, which is like an angel crying on your tongue. <laughs> cilantro. <laughs> cilantro. Is that, did he say cilantro? And the first time I heard that, I thought, who wants cilantro? I don't understand. Okay, so in this episode, everyone's betting and everyone's bluffing. So if you're starting to feel nervous, just bluff like you're not. This right. is me bluffing. <laughs> The episode centers a lot around a poker game, and Josh is our resident poker expert. How's the poker? Uh, as depicted in this episode, not great. I brought some cards, by the way. Um, I meant to bring some. I could only find very, very cheap little. We'll throw some. I'll try to hit the fifth row in a minute. But one thing I did notice is Fitterer, as played by Lily Tomlin, who's wonderful, is supposed to be the kind of the card sharp of the uh, group, but she as I complained about, I think in the first season, she splashes the pot. Anybody know what that is? That's when you call or when you make a bet and you throw your chips in such a way that they hit the main pot, which is also a great way to cheat. So maybe, maybe it's by design. Because if you say she bets $50 and kind of tosses them into the middle, who's to say whether she really put out 50? So that is splashing the pot and Fitterer is an inveterate pot splasher. <laughs> and I can't approve of that. <laughs> But you didn't object to it on set that day? Yeah, yeah. I don't get paid for making suggestions. <laughs> and as a result, in four seasons, I made none. <laughs> I just want to point out that, that there it wasn't a camera stunt with somebody else shuffling the way he shuffled. Oh, I'm, I am a, I am, I'm a machine when it comes to shuffling. And I subscribe OCD-ish uh, as I am. There was a New York Times article. I think I can... We'll put the uh, link up when we actually post the episode, saying that seven imperfect shuffles makes for a thoroughly shuffled deck. So now when I'm actually playing cards and when it's my deal, I always shuffle seven times. Did you say seven imperfect shuffles? Yeah, I don't know what a perfect shuffle is, where every card, I guess, interlaces with the other, but seven regular riffle shuffles makes for a well-shuffled deck. That's two minutes of my life I will never get back. <laughs> don't encourage him. As a, it's an Aaron Sorkin He'll just quote. Act yeah. Like a short-tailed badger in a room full of <laughs> metal barrels. Richard, I thought you had an air of uh, someone who'd been around a lot of poker tables. It might have just been the cigar smoking, but have you played a lot of poker too? I believe I won the very first uh, round of Celebrity Poker that you guys produced, right? I produced a Celebrity Poker show called Celebrity Poker Showdown back in the States, invited the West Wing players on, and Richard made uh, quick work of them and did win that uh, episode. He's, he's, a, he's a real card player. Then I stayed out all night in the championship round. I was out like lightning. I was... <laughs> <laughs> well, that happens too. Yes. Well, here's it. Maybe we can go to it. I think my argument is that Toby Ziegler is the closest to a Damon Runyon-esque character 
that Aaron has created. Are you guys familiar with Damon Runyon's work? No. That's because he's probably best known in the States for having written short stories on which were based the musical. That's a play with songs, Rishi. Guys and Dolls. And there's either, I think, either a subconscious or a consciously made choice by Aaron to give Toby a very uh, Runyon-esque line of dialogue. I've seen guys make the ace of spades jump out of their shoes. I don't think it was the equinox. This put me in mind of a line that Marlon Brando spectacularly miscast as Sky Masterson in the film version <laughs> has, and I think you can play that too. One of these days in your travels, a guy is going to show you a brand new deck of cards on which the seal is not yet broken. Then this guy is going to offer to bet you that he can make the jack of spades jump out of this brand new deck of cards and squirt cider in your ear. But son, you do not accept this bet because as sure as you stand there, you're going to wind up with an ear full of cider. Toby Ziegler-like, right? I wish I had known about that before I actually did the shoot. I would have <laughs> imitated Brando. In the episode overall, I think this poker game kind of serves as a... Well, I, I felt like there was a lot of poker metaphor throughout the whole thing. The other major subplot is this uh, spy plane that's trying to be recovered by the president. And the way that his conversations with the Russian president, Shigorin, play out. A lot of it feels a little bit like it has the energy and dynamic of, of a poker hand, you know, where the president will say something, Shigorin will say something, the president will say something back, and they're sort of checking each other and, and rechecking each other and trying to see who might fold first. And the president had a very bad hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's actually a very good point, yeah. both of you, because I, I think it is like a poker game, and it speaks to Bartlett's President Bartlett. <laughs> His relationship with Leo. President Leo. President Leo. <laughs> Buckle up, it's gonna be a long night. <laughs> president night. <laughs> the president knows that he does have a particularly weak hand going into that conversation with Shigor, and he even says, it's, you know, ostensibly about the egg. You know, like, this is never gonna work, but he seems like he's talking about the, the ploy that Leo is kind of feeding him. But I think it's a tribute to his friendship with Leo that he gives it a shot at first. <laughs> it's also a great example of Aaron Sorkin planting seeds with him saying, this is never gonna work, and then he's gotta go into scenario which is most likely never gonna work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's a little bit of the conversation between Shigorin and Bartlett. I'll take a look at those pictures and send them to you with your UAV. Well, the problem is our UAVs have a self-detonating capability and our people know how to disarm it. And I wouldn't want to put your guys at risk. Well, given the circumstances, I'm sure your experts wouldn't mind talking through the steps with our experts. It's a raise. It's proprietary technology, Peter to view coastal erosion? I know, it seems. Sir, I'm going to interrupt this call at this time to speak with my counterintelligence attache. Yes, Mr. President. Thank you, sir. He calls him on it. <laughs> you know, listening to them, it's funny. They're recording a scene where the two actors are in the room and they're both pretending to be on the phone. <laughs> the interpreter <laughs> and Martin Sheen. I wonder whether there was actually someone there mumbling in Russian. <laughs> I mean, certainly if you had been doing the scene, you would have demanded somebody on the other end, right? I would have demanded them being on the other end in Russia. <laughs> That's method. That is badass. It's actually the opposite of method. It's making it easier for me. <laughs> By the way, I would say that it wasn't a call. He lost that hand. It wasn't an all-in hand yet. Right. But he lost that hand. Yeah. I didn't mean to stop the conversation. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> That's all we've got, folks. <laughs>
Meanwhile, in the actual poker game that's happening, one of the things that I, I love is um, Leo's reaction before the game even happens, just his reaction to the deli platter. Oh, the rye bread. <laughs> excited, yeah. He gets so excited about uh, the rye, rye bread. bread. This is what I call a night off. Squeeze this piece of rye bread. But if you watch... If that's you, really disgusting out of context. If you watch that, it's such a beautiful actor's moment because he's talking about something else he happens to squeeze the, bri- the rye bread and it trumps everything else. Excuse the word. It, um, all right, all right. Um, it, uh, it overwhelms everything else that he was talking about at that moment. It's just such a beautiful actor's moment. It's been a while since I've watched The West Wing, since the last podcast, I believe. And um, it just made me miss him so much. He's just such a lovely, lovely actor and man. I thought Leo's excitement over the rye bread, and I apologize in advance if this is a little bit racist. Um, but Apology not accepted in advance. That's not how that works. That's fair. That's fair. But it reminded me of a scene from earlier in season four when Ben Yosef, the Israeli foreign minister, says... And in addition to being a good friend to Israel, Leo McCary, of course, is the most Jewish man most of us have ever met. I'll wait for a ruling. That reminds me, actually. I feel, as a Jew in Dublin, I feel very uh, comfortable around Gaelic. There's, you've got more guttural stuff going on <laughs> than I realize. There's an old joke about the Israeli cheerleader who revs up the crowd by saying, give me a... <laughs> <laughs> Could have been an Irish cheerleader. It works, works just as well. I don't know if you heard, at the end of the clip there with Leo, CJ says, she squeezes the, the rye bread and then she says... Now what do I do? Um... <laughs> And I'm kind of with her. I don't really understand what squeezing bread will prove, regardless of what the result of squeezing the bread is. Like, what does that demonstrate? I'm on Leo's side myself. <laughs> I like to squeeze a good bread. Oh. Well, there's, there's actually a listing in, uh, I found in Urban Dictionary. They have a listing for bread squeezer. Are you sure you want to go there? <laughs> it's defined... It's defined as a person who is so awful, they go into a grocery store and squeeze the loaves of bread. (laughs) Sorry, Richard. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) But also about Leo's excitement about when he says, this is what I call a night off. How is it a night off? It's a Friday night and they're all at work. They're dressed for work. It's not, you know, one of those days where they're in their Notre Dame sweatshirts or anything like that. They're they're all at work. Yeah. I was slightly annoyed just that they would spend their time off together. <laughs> oh, that makes me crazy. The cast of Scandal was always like that. We're together working all the time, then their time off, they're like, want to get together and watch Scandal? And like, God, no. By the way, it doesn't just, this doesn't just stop at Scandal. When Josh and I were planning our trip, I said, uh, oh, um, which hotel do you want to stay at? Should we stay at the same hotel? And Josh said, no. <laughs> I'll see you on stage. You hear it? You to tell me this isn't quality time? Did you, in the good old days, before I joined the cast, did, did the cast spend much off time together? Not in Los Angeles, but when we were in D.C., but we did make a point of not sitting next to each other on the plane, because then you'd have to talk to each other. And, <laughs> you know, who needs that? But when we were in, um, in D.C., uh, yeah, we, we hung out quite a bit, and then you showed up. <laughs> and everybody dispersed. <laughs> I was hoping that um, if they're going to have a night off, at least Josh would show up in his giant blue pajamas that CJ gave him. Oh, right. Yeah. 
That would have been a good touch. Yeah. <laughs> also, by the way, to my memory, we both threw the cards into the bucket, and it didn't take many takes. I'm saying we were good at it. I actually have no memory of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should make for a fine guest tonight. <laughs> I wish you had told us that three weeks ago. Again, I say, I've got my Guinness, and I'm good. <laughs> right, so to backtrack for a second, Debbie wants in on the card game, and the president is kind of patronizing with her, saying, oh, we don't play for matchsticks and all this stuff. But we know from when we first met her, when we first learned about her occupation, that after getting fired from the Office of Presidential Personnel and before she started farming alpacas, she described her occupation as craps and blackjack. So I would oh, think right. that, you know, she's a hustler. That said, when you produce a wad of money so as to impress, it shouldn't be 20s. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, President Barton's like, I've never seen that much money before. <laughs> Uh, how about hundreds? <laughs> That's true. He is in charge of Fort Knox. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then um, when Will sits down, she, she kind of gets upstaged by your riffle shuffle. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's a standard riffle shuffle. Okay. <laughs> and then the whole thing I'm gets... a standard riffle shuffler. <laughs> standard Every day I'm shuffling, if, I, if oh, I'm to be honest. Man. Rick Ross would never... I work in some chip tricks as well. That's all I got. <laughs> Yeah, so Will kind of upstages her there, and then immediately it, it kind of goes into um, this uh, one-upsmanship between Toby and, and Will about throwing cards. After the Joker shows up, Will, Josh, you, you throw this card, and the way it, it's shown in the episode, the card goes flying, and uh, we see from another office, it lands in the trash can, but we don't see it land in the trash can, we just hear it. So How I was wondering, dare you? <laughs> I, I, we get what you're implying. I'm just wondering... It landed. <laughs> I don't I ha- remember. I have no memory of it. <laughs> Somebody tell Richard the premise of the show. <laughs> I remembered it when I saw it. I have no memory. And then I, I noticed when we were doing it that I had no memory of actually shooting it. <laughs> My but, memory as well is that even though we go into the press room, right? The press briefing room yep. to toss. I also don't buy that you leave a poker game where in a single bet you can bet $50 to wager a dollar a card. <laughs> that is a move I would never make. Dollar a card, let's go. So we never get to actually throwing cards, but my memory is that we actually did and that we were pretty good. Where are we? Where were we? Matthew Perry's in this episode. That's right. Should we talk about Matthew Perry? Yes. In a little preview, in terms of Sorkinese, of Studio 60, we get Brad Whitford and Matthew Perry working together. This, this episode was actually an audition for Studios. 60, I believe. Perhaps so. Well, he, got, well, he booked and the a job. successful one. Yeah. yeah. He plays Joe Quincy, who's um, interviewing for the... <laughs> I mean, Sawbones. <laughs> He's a Sawbones. Shyster. You're, that's just a random Jewish insult. <laughs> um, but I, I think I know what you're going for, but you're supposed to say ahead of time, I apologize if this is anti-Semitic. <laughs> but your heart's in the right place, I know. <laughs> So Joe Quincy is applying for the um, White House counsel job that Ainsley has vacated. This is one part of the episode that I don't really like and I don't think holds up to modern scrutiny, which is uh, Josh's constant discussion of how the job needs to be filled by an attractive woman. Um, Here's a little trio of things that Josh Lyman says in this episode. I miss Ainsley. That's who the counsel's office should get to fill that position. Another Ainsley, a sexy conservative with first-rate law credentials and a strange name. It's one. It's funny. It's what I was just saying. The person who created the job opening, her name was Ainsley Hayes. 
and she was uh, she was a very attractive woman. And I was saying that we needed to find another attractive woman with an unusual name. And here you're a man, and your name is Joe. That's you. Because if you're a Republican, then you damn well better look like Ainsley Hayes. He does. That last one is being said in front of Joe Quincy. I mean, if you thought you could somehow get away with discussing the employability of somebody based on how they look behind their back, that's one thing. And then to do it in front of the person that you're interviewing, I feel like, I mean, as they often do, Josh and Donna both need a trip down to HR. I remember Matthew Perry having come off a massively successful run on Friends before this. And if you know, a, a multi-camera sitcom like Friends is pretty much the easiest job in the world. You show up the first day, you do a table read for about a half an hour, then you go home while the writers and producers rewrite. And the second day you come back and you read through it and you put it on his feet a little bit and then you go home after two hours and so on. It's not, never a lot of work. Then you show up and you film it in front of a live audience for about five hours. And I remember Matthew after about three days of shooting The West Wing saying, my God, this is the hardest I've ever worked. <laughs> and I said, yeah, and we don't get a million dollars at the end of the week. <laughs> speaking, we get much, much less. Speaking to that, after uh, I worked with him in his next episode, Matthew and I had a storyline. And at one point uh, after a 13 hour, into our 13th hour, I said, how long, do you, how long is your work week? And he goes, you mean actually acting? And I said, yeah, he goes... 11 hours. We've already surpassed in the first days. And then I calculated in my mind how much money he was making an hour. <laughs> it didn't make me happy. Do you want to talk about the egg? Well, I think we have to now, Rishi. All right. Now that you've said it. This episode aired well past the vernal equinox, but in the episode, it is the vernal equinox. And CJ has this theory that you can stand an egg on end. And this actually came from one of the story by co-writers of the show, of this episode, Eli Addy. Eli actually, he gave us the origin story of the egg. What came first? Yeah. <laughs> you beat me to that. Back when I was a teenager, my parents went to a party on the vernal equinox, the first day of spring. And everybody at this party was given an uncooked egg, so that at the exact moment of the equinox, they could try to stand their egg on its end. And my mom said, and she still maintains to this day, that nobody could stand their egg on end beforehand, but that at the exact moment of the equinox, at that very second, suddenly everybody could stand their eggs on end. Some weird gravitational force kicked in, who knows. But my mother brought home a Polaroid photograph of a couple dozen of these eggs standing on end on the porch of this party. And sure enough, the next year we tried this at home during the next vernal equinox, and it worked. At that second, you could stand the egg on end. A protein-based miracle. So, you know, one day, a bunch of years later, I told this story in the West Wing writer's room, and Aaron thought I was nuts. He thought I had completely lost my mind, joined some kind of an egg-based cult. But I insisted it was true. I'd seen it with my own eyes. So Aaron demanded that our researcher, Lauren Schmidt, look it up online that very second. So she jumped on her computer, and there were a million hits, and I thought I was vindicated, but they were all from websites debunking urban myths, which became, in Aaron's mind, thingsthatarentrue.com. And I still insisted it was true. So that really became the idea for the teaser and the egg storyline in this episode. It was Aaron's outright mockery of me, mind for all its uh, dramatic and, and comedic juice. 
<laughs> but, you know, before Eli's parents, it seems like the story came to America about the eggs from China via an article in Life magazine. There's a headline in an article from March 19th, 1945 that says, Eggs Stand on End in Chongqing. And the article says that according to Chinese legend, one day each year, winter ends and spring begins, and for an hour before and after the change of season, eggs will stand on end. But it also mentions that the date when this happens is variable, like Thanksgiving in America, where it doesn't stick to one date on the calendar. Anyway, it turns out you can stand an egg on end, but it's a matter of balance and friction and not one of seasons or astrophysics, as, as Toby says. Although even this is disputed by people, you know, with anecdotal evidence of doing it on the vernal equinox. I like that Bartlett attempt. Yeah, that's right. And he just has an egg. Leo comes. The oval's got everything. <laughs> Leo walks in and well, he it says. it is an oval. I guess it makes sense. Uh, oh, my God. Rishi, do you think you could balance an egg on end if you had one? <laughs> oh, there's an egg. All right. I, like President Bartlett, I carry around an egg, I guess. Here we go. This is going to be great for the people listening at home. Okay, there it is. I will there not give away any secrets. <laughs> it's an egg. What more do you want? <laughs> So that was Eli Addy, uh, one of the writers to whom is credited the story of this episode. The other one is David Handelman. I forgot to mention, fun fact about David Handelman, who's a wonderful writer and a great guy, he's the only writer in the world to have written on every Sorkin television series. No, I think wow. there's one other. Aaron Sorkin. Oh, that's um, why I'm staying at a separate hotel. <laughs> um... David told us about some of the backstory for Joe Quincy's character. He had written a memo when they were trying to figure out what this process would be like of interviewing uh, someone for the position. And so he got to interview Bernie Nussbaum and now Supreme Court Justice Kagan, who both had been associate counsels for the Clinton White House, which is pretty cool. Bernie Nussbaum's daughter, by the way, is now my, one of my favorite TV critics, Emily Nussbaum at the New Yorker. Yes. Someone that David pointed out was not particularly kind to Aaron on Studio 60. Sad fact. <laughs> Thank you. On behalf of Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think David Handelman also mentioned that the, what is it, the SF-86? Is yep. that the form that uh, Joe is failing to fill out completely? We, he sent us a memorandum that he, I guess, and Eli had written for Aaron about the real SF-86. It does not, it turns out, include questions like, are you sad? <laughs> um, it's a little bit drier than what they came up with for the TV show. Richard, did you ever get to interview your corresponding people in the Clinton administration or anything like that? When uh, I, I wouldn't call it an interview, but a conversation, yeah. Yeah. I did, and I forgot her name, but she was the communications <laughs> director at the end of the uh, Clinton term, but I spoke to previous communication directors as well. And of communications course, director. Is no, communications <laughs> director, like attorneys general. Exactly. Um, he gets it. He gets it. Uh, and chefs, boy, you know, never mind. Um, <laughs> and of course, every communications director for every state legislator and local mayor around America has introduced themselves to me. <laughs> so I've had a lot of conversations since the West Wing. <laughs> but yeah, I, and, and also being a speechwriter, the initial visit to the Clinton White House, I went downstairs to the writer's room, uh, which became an open invitation whenever we were in town. So I'd, you know, it was before 9-11, you'd go to the gate and they go, hey, come on in. And uh, I'd go downstairs and hang out with the writers, yeah. Was that just fun or did it actually end up informing any of your, your choices? It was painful. Would you be able to tell? 
If it was fun, Richard? Uh. <laughs> yes, doctor. <laughs> president doctor. Um, it's not doctor's president? <laughs> He's good. Um, He's good, doctor. Don't, don't, don't applaud him, me, meaning me. That was you. I know. It just encourages me. Um, <laughs> was it fun or, was, or did it actually, in a substantial way, inform any of the choices you made uh, as Toby or things that you would suggest? Because I know, unlike Josh, you were someone who would suggest things if they felt... Well, I, uh, this is when it became fun, was at, uh, say, at the correspondence dinner that we would be invited to, and uh, Clinton had given a recent speech or later Obama, and you look at John Favreau, not the movie director and actor, but the speechwriter for Obama, who was Sorkin-esque and quite eloquent and uplifting in his speechwriting he did for Obama, uh, and then to have a conversation with him about the race speech, for instance, that Obama's fa famous speech, which was mostly written by Obama, but just to talk to him about the message that President Obama was uh, implementing and his participation in that, to me, was fascinating. So I, I enjoyed quite a bit the relationships that I made in Washington and, and the consultants that we had on, the, on set early on before you came. Um, <laughs> You know, a, a, a conversation with Dee Dee Myers very deeply affected how I portrayed uh, Toby. I was just having a conversation with her very early on, and um, she uh, mentioned an incident where she was a senior advisor to the president, uh, as my position was. She was press secretary, the first one under Clinton, and um, they were having uh, a session in the Oval Office about some domestic policy, and her advice ended up being taken by President Clinton, and the next day she saw her advice on the front page of every newspaper in the world at the kiosk. And that's when it hit her how impactful her position is and how much responsibility is, and it scared her, it freaked her out. And I took that in and realized that if I was in that position, I would feel like I'm carrying the world on my shoulders because every decision that we make determines whether people have a home or not, determine whether people can get health care or not, determine whether people live or die. And I realized that responsibility would be burdensome to say the least and would excuse a character being somewhat morose. <laughs> and, ha and have a very dark sense of humor. You mentioned the Clinton administration. You were, were you not rubbing elbows with the man himself yesterday? Knees, we were rubbing knees. Yeah. Um, yes, I went up to the Good Friday Agreement 20th anniversary in Belfast. Uh, I was not personally responsible for the agreement. Let's just make that clear. You are too modest. And um, I rooted for it, if that helps. It was quite a phenomenal experience uh, for someone, an outsider, an American, who closest he came to the troubles in Belfast was a bar on Third Avenue in New York which most likely was running guns to the IRA, by the way. No kidding. And, um, but was always very curious, not really understanding uh, it completely. And to see all the players, you know, the, the PR guy for the IRA was on stage with the police commissioner, and they were having a conversation. And I don't know how dangerous it is for me to say it, but I, I, won't, I won't pick a guy, but you can tell there are guys up there who've killed people. Bill Clinton told the story up there, he, said, he went and visited the largest black Methodist church in the South. And he was trying to be clever, and he was introduced to the president, and he said, 
I wish I was the president with no term limits, trying to be clever, he says. And the preacher said, Mr. President, everyone has term limits. The point being is that, and he was speaking to the two women who were now responsible for either ending the stalemate or not, and said, we're gray-haired, talking about yesterday, you're tomorrow, you know? And the message is, which this episode has, our time is short-lived here. Get back, as CJ says, to doing the work of the nation, right? When she's talking to the press after mm -hmm. the shooting incident. But what's fascinating to me about watching this episode again is that I'm pretty sure that Aaron Sorkin knew he was leaving when he wrote this episode, because two episodes later, he wrote his last episode, correct? And I, I noticed there was, first of all, a great appreciation for every character. And he was establishing love between Donna and Josh, between, who else is in this show? <laughs> um, Donna and Josh. I didn't remember doing the show, but I, I remember <laughs> when I watched it, I was quite fascinated with Toby's disposition. You know, he seemed to be a little more alive. He was chewing bubble gum and sucking on lollipops. And, and he seemed to have a special appreciation for CJ. And I remember the very last moment when I, I, I think I said, are you okay? And she says, yeah. And I just say goodnight. And what I do remember, because I saw it, was, <laughs> was a moment where I could have stopped and made a moment and chose not to because a moment would have been made. And that was too dangerous between us, I think. And, um, oh, Zoe and Charlie clearly have deep love for each other. And circumstances had pulled them apart, which, by the way, plants the seed for the last episode. I thought it was beautiful that uh, Aaron was, was really showing his love for us before we knew that he was leaving. Well, it's funny that you bring that up, because I watched it wondering trying to remember when we did have, we were finally Knowledge. told that- Wasn't it the very, la before the last That's episode? not how I remember, uh, but you know, clearly- How do you remember? Well, uh, we'll trust your memory. <laughs> sure, you probably got it right. No, I, I thought it was maybe even this episode. I remember everything offset. I don't remember anything. Well, my, here's my, whenever, whenever it happened, my big memory of being told was that Tommy and Aaron called for a full cast meeting. We knew something momentous was happening. They told us without too much fanfare, look, we're leaving at the end of this season for a variety of reasons. Maybe they gave us a little bit of information. And my strong memory of that moment, because everybody's faces just fell, and it was very emotional, and everybody was very upset, and we kind of had a... Uh, it was a very West Wing moment where everybody had a chance to say something around the room. You know, it was very, I serve at the pleasure of the president. And I remember each person stood up and I particularly, you, you spoke particularly movingly and I believe you had tears in your eyes and there was some question as to whether people wanted even to continue without Tommy at the helm and Aaron, uh, you know, as the creator and writer of essentially every episode. And I remember it finally got around to me and I was like, not to be a buzzkill, I just got here, and I would like the show to continue. Still, I'm very sad, and you should know that I wish you guys would stay. And then the meeting sort of ended on that note. As, as it should. Yeah. But I, I'm a huge fan of yours, and as I re-watched this episode, I when thought... When are you going to start acting like it? As kidding, soon as we're kidding, off I'm mic. A, I'm a huge fan of yours. <laughs> as soon as we're off mic. Now, I watched this episode and thought, I could watch an entire episode of Toby Ziegler Consumes a Lollipop. <laughs> you know, 
there's something about every moment is so fully invested and there is a lot going on with you even as you just look at CJ and it's reflective of also what happened earlier. I noticed that in the fight or flight response competition, Will loses <laughs> handily in the press room because as the shots ring out, Will just hits the floor <laughs> and Toby makes sure that CJ <laughs> is down and safe. I don't, I don't, that's not what happened. You're an Air Force guy, come on. Uh, look, no, no we both Will has the presence of mind to say it was three shots. It came from this direction. Yes, but right. if you'll notice, as soon as the shots ring out, he's saving himself. <laughs> You're bringing CJ out. And then just to save face, I kind of put my hand over her head. Like, <laughs> I'm saving you too. I'm saving you too. But there is a very special relationship. Some, sometimes between... the actor takes over the character. <laughs> <laughs> when are you going to start acting like you like me? <laughs> Now we're going to take a quick break. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing. And now back to the show. One of the most special relationships, and it is often implicit rather than explicit on the show, is Toby CJ. That's my point. Mm-hmm. I had a very different kind of affection for Will. <laughs> That's true. The second time that CJ, you know, when shots rang out, that she's been pulled to the ground by the communications department. Because in season one, she's... Uh, Sam? She's, yeah, Sam pulls her down to the ground and then I here... Think I, I bet you I did it better. <laughs> <laughs> Who wore it better. <laughs> that was another theme, by the way. It was like a number of times people said, I'm sorry, you got shot at again. Right. Zoe says it. Yeah, to Charlie. To Charlie, and, um, yeah. And they bring it up during the card game that this is, this is the second time. And I thought it was very interesting. Josh's uh, PTSD from the last shooting, which earned him an Emmy. Um, <laughs> before Will Richard got there. Richard won one without a shooting. He did it entirely on his own. Oh? Who did? Who did you say? I complimented you. Oh, thank you. Don't worry, you won't remember tomorrow. (laughs) I don't remember already. (laughs) Uh, What the hell was I saying? You were talking about that Josh's PTSD comes up. And that it was alive in that story and yet not really played. He kind of dismissed it the way someone would try to keep something under the table. And yet it was very much alive. And it was, again, Aaron's way of expressing the love between Donna and Josh that she was so concerned. Do you need anything? Can I get you anything? Can I get you a water? Uh, And he's saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. I just thought that was beautifully done. 
Yeah, the expression of concern that other people have for characters in this episode is really sweet. That exchange between Donna and Josh and then Charlie busting into the Oval Office. I and love that. Was that great. President Bartlett basically says, does Charlie know? Because as soon as he he's hears, gonna he's going to bust in yeah. here. And then he does. Yeah. At that moment. And Dulé was so great. Rushing in out of breath and emotional. Yeah. It was really beautiful. And then Debbie also comes in and she, you know, she, she has some concern for the president's symptoms, just the way Donna had concern for Josh's symptoms. And I thought that was really sweet, but I, it was also a little bit sad for me because now for the first time, this character has taken on some of the affection that Mrs. Landingham yeah. had for the president. And I thought that was a little bit sad that this kind of torch has been passed onto her. I like that she comes over to him and she says, Thank you, Mr. President. I'm going to need to take your blood pressure in a few minutes. Yeah. She says it into his ear, but at full volume. Full volume. I was just thinking that. I thought the same thing. I was like, I was like your... that's not whispering. That's speaking at full volume right into someone's ear. Where's your discretion? Where's your ability to lie? Um, an actor who I love and who just worked with again in a movie and who doesn't get celebrated so much, partly because some of the, some of the actors, especially when they're not in the big roles, who are so good, you forget that they're acting. And in this case, it's Michael O'Neill. Love Michael O'Neill. Was Ron the Butterfield. Secret Service agent. And if you watch that scene when he comes in and takes control of the room and gathers information and makes the call to crash the White House, he's so good. Michael O'Neill is wonderful. And I don't know, do you get scandal here? Yes. He's been playing Lonnie Mencken in the uh, late episodes of the final season, and he's fantastic on scandal as well. One of the things I love about that scene, I'm glad that you brought it up, when he makes the decision to crash, is that. He makes the decision when Leo, this is after the shooting, they're all in the Oval, and Leo lets yeah. slip or shares that there have been these multiple uh, acts of violence around the world. And immediately upon hearing that, Butterfield makes the decision to crash. And I was thinking, maybe you should have told him this before. <laughs> yeah. But I think, in fact, it's very realistic in terms of, you know, we know uh, different people and sometimes different agencies uh, in the U.S. government have a, a sometimes catastrophic failure to share information. And, uh, you know, post 9-11, we found out the FBI and the CIA failed, and, the, and the, I guess the NSA as well, the National Security Agency, failed to share information. And I think it was a neat little microcosmic look at that. Mm. Uh, in just in one line. Yeah. And that, there was the moment when Joe, uh, Matthew Perry, reiterates that when he says... He's asking why, why we crashed if it was only a lone gunman. And Josh says something, and he says, because usually there's other incidents before uh, you crash the White House, and Josh confirms that, which is also another way that Joe makes his way into the trust of Brad, thinking that he's one of us, you know, yeah. even though he's a Republican. He's bluffing. There you go. Another element of that scene that I love is it's prior to our discovery explicitly that Joe is, in fact, a Republican, and there are some subtle, maybe, indications yeah. in their conversation. He hears about the shooter. They have a suspect in custody, yes. Is he white? Is his first question. <laughs> Not trying to paint with too broad a brush here, but... <laughs> he does, at least he does ask before he says that, I'm not sure if this is racist, but... <laughs> oh, that's where you got it. <laughs> Um, I was just quoting. <laughs> and then he says, you know, do we think it was terrorism? And Josh says, a guy yeah. took a shot at the White House. And he says, well, I mean, national terrorism. And it's he says, House. the guy took a shot at the White House. It's terrorism. And uh, I thought that was rather prescient in terms of we've got a situation now where we have a president of the United States who is very quick to call things uh, terrorism before any information is in if uh, uh, the act person. involves a Muslim huh? or a person of color. Right. 
very slow on the draw when it comes to violence perpetrated by white people. Or with people with hoods, yeah. <laughs> uh, or people in white, yeah. But there, there's a great line in the sequence with Joe, because Joe's answering all the questions right a little quickly, but correctly, really. And Donna's asking how it's going in the hallway, and he says, something doesn't feel right. He feels like a really good baseball player in the other team's locker room for the first time. And that's a little seed planted for what we find out later. I just love how Aaron just plants, gives us these little clues and seeds as to what's going to happen. There's one part in, the, in their exchange, though, that I didn't quite understand and didn't feel like... You're a harsh critic. I just want to point that out. <laughs> well, there's no chance of Aaron employing Rishi. <laughs> you and I have a shot at working for him again. Yeah, yeah. We're, and, we're, and we're clearly still vying for that as we speak. <laughs> also, do you need to step out and make a phone call? No, I'm looking at notes. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure. Right, right. <laughs> Never mind. Question I'm, withdrawn. I'm actually, I'm actually playing online poker. <laughs> Let me play the part that I'm talking about between Joe and Josh. Did you hear the shots? No, but I heard a brass quintet playing the first Noel, so I just assumed somebody somewhere was locked and loaded. You know, not for nothing, but the people that I talk to don't believe that story, and the people that you'd like don't care. So this is another indication that, you know, he's not actually playing for the same team, but that's not my objection. I think that that's fine if they're planting seeds, like you said. But first of all, who knows about the thing with Josh and PTSD? Because my sense was that... Yeah, I, I, I didn't get this at all. Yeah, I, I was confused, agree. yeah. They, they keep things with, uh, with Stanley Keyworth pretty quiet. So I imagine that's private. I think that Josh would be private about it. So even when Josh himself says, oh, I heard, you know, he makes this sort of offhand comment about his PTSD, re referring to it, one, it seems strange because he's basically saying something that Joe won't understand. Yeah. But then Joe picks it up and he does get it. And then I don't understand why Joe is so aggro in his response. He says people don't believe that story. And I'm not sure what he means by what that story is, that, that Josh was shot at because he was, or that he has PTSD and that people don't believe in PTSD. It's I don't the really musical. Know. That, that music triggers a PTSD? Right. How does it, he know that? Or? Yeah. You know, I, you know, this is a subject on which I get uh, very upset with writers and showrunners on my current show is a good example of that, where they write something and to continue the story of it, they don't understand that my character has no way of knowing this information. And I come in there with an opinion about a thing that the audience is fully aware of, and I say, I have no idea that this is even happening. My character doesn't watch the show. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true. Um, but that's, this is an example of, of a character uh, taking on, because they didn't want to play it, probably, and they wanted to be sure that we referenced it in case we weren't thinking about it. Mm -hmm. That's why it's there. It's a writer's trick. And he used a character that wouldn't ever make that comment to make that comment. Right. It's the one criticism in four years I have of Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> I think also it feels like I'm supposed to be buying into the idea that I like Joe, that he's a likable guy. But this feels like an unlikable moment that he's like mocking a that too, gunshot yeah. victim's trauma, you know, again, right in front of him. That said, I think Matthew Perry, very good on the show. It's Matthew Perry, after all. So you're going to like him no matter what. Right. He carries a little Chandler charm with him wherever he goes. But I think to his credit, this he performance is very non-Chandler-esque. I thought he was great. And I was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wonder what that felt like. No, uh, Matthew's a very talented man. <laughs> but I was surprised. 
I want to go back to the special relationship, not the Tony Blair, Bill Clinton special relationship, but the CJ Toby special relationship. I really like this moment when, uh, after she's been shot at, and you know, Larry makes the comment, you're awfully upbeat for someone who's been shot at twice. CJ says, you know, that we've dipped twice and eaten your filter Yeah, we got fish. a couple of good uh, Passover references yeah. <laughs> in this episode. And, Susie and Cream says, Cheese is yes, that Yes, Susie Cream Cheese, don't attempt the Haggadah. Which, by the way, <laughs> Susie Cream Cheese is a Frank Zappa reference. Uh, oh, by the way, Susie Cream Cheese, who Frank Zappa's singing about, is a real person. So Toby Ziegler's talking about Susie Cream Cheese there, and her real name was Susie Zieger, Z-I-E-G-E-R. Isn't that weird? Ooh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I gave you new. <laughs> by the way, so the two Seder references are, she says something of blessing the soup. I think this has nothing to do with normative Judaism, but she mentions dipping twice. At the Seder, we dip twice. We dip a green vegetable in salt water, symbolic of the tears of our ancestors as they worked under slavery. And we dip the bitter herbs into charoset, as we say in Gaelic. Charoset. Which is meant to look like mortar and bricks and it's wine and nuts. and For the Egyptian buildings. Right, very good. That your ancestors made. Well, I don't think there's any archaeological evidence. (laughs) But it's in the book. (laughs) I appreciate that uh, CJ is trying to hang with her Jewish friends, making Passover references. I felt like I related right. very sometimes, much to that. Sometimes you get a uh, moment. <laughs> shouldn't step on your jokes. <laughs> You've heard of a crossover episode? This is a Passover episode. <laughs> I just thought she was coming on to me. <laughs> At this point, so, you know, we're really talking about the title of the episode and the evidence of things not seen. And... The story that Will tells, so we find out later that Will is off to Cheyenne to defend these guys who didn't fire at what might have been an incoming North Korean missile and what, in fact, turned out to be a meteor. And I think there's this great view of this question throughout this episode. And I think Aaron talks about this. It feels so weird every time I say Aaron, because I, unlike you guys, are not on first name President Aaron. But anyway, (laughs) President Aaron has a great view of, of this, where if you have a prime directive, which is to follow orders... You know, do you disobey them in order to do the right thing? It comes up a little bit with the Vicki Hilton subplot that, that was uh, earlier. And then here again with these guys, you know, are they in fact going to be court-martialed for saving a bunch of lives? You know, for arguing. This with was them. our Crimson Tide episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is yeah. at the heart of A Few Good Men as well. Exactly, yeah. Just this idea of whether you follow orders uh, that you uh, either have a moral objection to or that you feel in this case are going to lead to a nuclear war based on a mistake. And of course the inverse of what's being posited here is what if it really was an incoming missile and these guys decided not to fire. It's Failsafe, the movie from 1964 on the same subject. That he remembers. It was a good movie. <laughs> it was a good movie. Um, and uh, it also is scarily present in our crisis at home in that many of us feel that we're going to have to rely on our military to disobey orders in order to protect our, our lives and the earth. <laughs> Clearly, there's a clear and present danger uh, sitting behind the Oval Office desk. And I am sure that the military brass have already had this conversation what do we do if he orders a strike on North Korea? So it's a relevant, that's the word I was looking for, relevant um, subject 15 years later or whatever. 
there's a little bit in Isaac and Ishmael where Abby talks about the story of Abraham and Isaac. She doesn't get into this part, but you know, the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son by God and then having to go through with it. And you know, there's a similar kind of thing where he has these two different directives that he has to follow, like doing the right thing and not killing his son or doing the thing that he's supposed to do and following God's orders. And I think I'm going off topic here a little bit, but I think Go, that, baby, go. Uh, but that dilemma for Abraham is about faith, and that's what CJ is talking about here. She's talking right. about having faith in, that's right. you know, what do you have faith in? It does help when an angel comes down and tells you the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> what if that angel needs maintenance? And what if... <laughs> <laughs> But so I think evidence of things not seen is, you know, this calling the bluff is another way of talking about faith. I think there are lots of instances. I think part of what you were talking about where it was evidence of things not seen in the relationship and your decision not to play certain moments and let it sort of percolate subtly in the performances. I also think in that great scene that you mentioned between Zoe and Charlie, he keeps mocking Jean-Paul. And finally she says, he's not like that. There's evidence of things we haven't seen because we've been exposed only to his sort of his accent and <laughs> the ridiculous things he says in that hair. And we learned from Zoe, there's maybe a, a hidden depth there that we've not detected. And, the, and, the, and the, the idea of faith, which is right for this episode, ultimately it's President Bartlett who has faith that he can have a conversation about trust with the president. And this is how we've avoided nuclear disaster for 60 years Right. conversations like this and he makes the leap of faith to tell him the truth that yes we were spying on Kalinaskalistan Kalanakalanagrand whatever it is what is it it's a real city Russia yeah thank you um, and uh, I always and, forget about Russia and that they were spying on the illegal black market dissemination of nuclear arms and admitted, yes, we were spying on you for that reason, uh, because you're not, and we want to help stop this. And this is the conversation that will begin a relationship of trust so that we can avoid nuclear disaster. And, and that was a leap of faith. And then when the show ends with her holding the egg and everyone being gone and her saying, guys, unnecessary, really, because she just needed to see it herself. Mm -hmm. You know, and the fact that these miracles of nature exist and that we just have to have faith in our existence on this earth and in each other. I, I'm reading maybe a little too much into it. <laughs> no, I think you're no, exactly not right. At all. It's and a I, combination of Bill Clinton and watching this episode. And <laughs> I'm a little over. Beautifully put. I think, you know, one thing that I like that Aaron Sorkin does, whether you like it or not, is a, I think is a fact of his writing that when he agrees with someone, when he wants to, you know, he's showing the debate between different sides of an argument, but there's also something like a card game going on. He gets to emphasize the point of the person he thinks is right by the person who wins the hand. And he does that with... CJ here um, at the end of this conversation with Toby. We failed both on a mechanical and human level. So tell me again what you have faith in? Us. Why? Because with what little time he has, Will is going to Wyoming to defend one of these guys, and I don't think it is failing on a human level. I got ace high flush. Give me your money. I've got tens full of queens. Give me yours. Don't you just want her? <laughs> That's uh, Oscar winner Allison Janney we're talking about. Uh, okay. 
Speaking of Oscar winners who have been on the West Wing, there's another person who won an Oscar who then joined the show. That was Marley Matlin. She's Joey Lucas. And we'd like to bring her out. Welcome Marley and Jack Jason. Yes. Marley is in town shooting Quantico. You, remem- you may remember... Uh, and apparently they all get along well, too, because some of her friends are here. But <laughs> she's got a lot of support here. What did you just say? I said that she's in town shooting Quantico. I think I'm allowed to say that, right? Yeah, yeah it's so not of a, course. People yeah. know that. And I said they are also clearly a nice cast, because I know some of her friends are also yeah, here I, to I have the cast her. here. Some of them are here. Where are you guys? Where are you guys? Where are you? <laughs> they could be up in a room somewhere listening. Wait, there's one there. There's <laughs> one there. Jake. Johanna, where's Blair? So Blair Underwood is here. Um, Jake McLaughlin is here. Joanna Brady is here. And you. Yeah, I did. And you. Yeah, yeah. So you're shooting Quantico. You're going to be in the new season. Can you tell us a little bit about your your character? So I'm, uh, well, I'm a badass. (laughs) A badass FBI agent. I'm a badass FBI agent. And it's a first for network television to have a character like that to be deaf and to be playing law enforcement with a gun. (laughs) But uh, Quantico has been a lot of fun to work on. And I won't say exactly, I won't say that it's better than The West Wing. I can't say that. (laughs) However, I'm having as much fun as I did on The West Wing. And I'm lucky to be working with a, a talented group of people and they're sitting right up there. And they're great actors. Thank you so much for making time to come hang out with us. I'm really, I'm really enjoying it so far. <laughs> <laughs> We've also set up a mic here at the front of the stage, and we thought, while we have all these people here, if anybody in the audience had a question, we'd like to invite you to come up and, uh, and ask whatever you want. But yeah, you can come yeah. up to the if mic. If anybody and... else has a question, if you want to line up, we'll take them one at a time. Go for it. Do you want me to get a picture of you uh, asking a question? Oh, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm, pre- I'm preparing for something. So first of all, I, I was prepared for the three of you, but I wasn't prepared for Marley. But I will say my parents, both my parents, were uh, teachers in St. Joseph's School for the Deaf in Cabra, just outside of Dublin. And uh, you are a hero of them and the students they taught. Thank you. Thank so, you. That's so beautiful. Um, so... That's my unprepared comment. So yeah, totally unprepared, but I have a a compliment, a a question, and a request. So the compliment compliment is Sound Exploder is fabulous. (laughs) Thank you, absolutely amazing. The request is that I have tickets to go see Hamilton in uh, June, and my Uh, wife is going with me, but She's not convinced it's any good, so I was wondering if uh, you would convince her, because I know you're a fan. Um, but that's why I had it on video, oh. Joshua. <laughs> I see. And, and my main question is, and I think this is on everybody's lips, Joshua, um, are you- Yes, do- I will marry you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go ahead. No, no, it's bigger than that, because um, we've all been listening to the podcast. I know where this is going. Are you Jewish? <laughs> totally get the question. Yes, yes, I am. 
So, yeah, my wife's name is Suzanne. If you could convince her that Hamilton <laughs> is worth going to, I would be so happy. I'm, I'll, try to, I'll try to keep this short. Don't cry. What's her name? No, don't cry, my, thank my you. My wife's name, Suzanne. Yeah. Yeah. Suzanne, if you have a brain in your head, <laughs> go see Hamilton. <laughs> thank you. Oh, there we go. Oh, yeah. So, uh, I don't have a heartwarming story, but I don't have a skeptical wife either, so it's okay. <laughs> so, the thing that really bothered me about this episode was the catering for the poker game. You all get so excited. There's the squeezing of the bread. Hey, is it from this place? Yeah, of course it's... I don't see anyone eating. I don't see anyone talking about eating. I don't see a big pile of crumbs on the table. I, I feel that I'm owed an explanation. <laughs> Toby has an excuse. He had gum. <laughs> Will and Fitterer are serious poker players. You don't sit down to eat. You sit down to play cards, so I don't know about the others. Question and I think Leo's Leo... having orgasms over the, right. the With thinly Leo... sliced pastrami. Why doesn't he eat it? I think for, for Leo, squeezing the food is as far as he gets. And I have a small follow-up question. I don't trust your egg. Can I have a look at it? <laughs> <laughs> Give him the egg. Can't break the holy line of demarcation. No, no, no. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Anybody else want to uh, slide up? Let me get another white male. Oh, here's one. I, uh, I don't know how I follow these guys, but uh, <laughs> this one's for Richard. You mentioned your conversation with Dee Dee Myers. Did you tell Aaron Sorkin about that? Because there's a very similar storyline in one of the episodes. It's with Sam Seaborn, and they make a suggestion to him, and he takes it to the president, and it happens, and they're like, you've got to tell me when that's going to happen. That's, I think it's you, and I think it's Ainsley. It happens to Ainsley as well. I, first of all, I resent the fact that if I told Aaron Sorkin a story and he used it on another character, <laughs> um, uh, it's very likely that I told him that story because I've told the story a lot. It happens with Charlie. He, uh, he suggests a policy thing and then he uses it in the speech and I think the end of season one. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Great, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. I have a question for Marley because we spoke about earlier about Aaron leaving the show. When did you find out about that? He was leaving the show? Yeah. I think, no, 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 when did he leave the show and did you find out about that? Did you know about that? I'm deaf, I didn't hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, in, in all honesty, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm always, being the guest star, I'm always the last to find out about anything. So. <laughs> we just heard that he just was moving on or something like that. And you still acted on the show post-Sorkin. Yes, I did. I did. And in all actuality, the flavor was different, obviously. It, yeah. was, it was much different. And I missed having Aaron on the set, always very uh, I mean, passionate about his, the lines that his actors would have to say. The West Wing was his baby. To you, he was like that. <laughs> I still haven't met him. <laughs> I have more hair than you do, so obviously it didn't get to me as much as it did to you. <laughs> Let's go. Hi. Hi. Um, this is just a general podcast question. I think Rishi's probably the biggest fan, so it's for you. I've been re-listening to the podcast. I'm, I'm sure everybody else has. You're the one. As I've been re-watching the episodes. I can hear it. I can hear it. 
Do you have a favorite? So my favorite podcast that I re-listened to was the one with Emily Proctor in this White House, where she talks about John Spencer walking her around his swimming pool with all the little obstacles. It's so sweet. And In Excelsis Deo, obviously, is the other one. But do you guys ever re-listen to the podcasts you've recorded? And do you have a favorite? No, I can't even listen to them once. <laughs> is that true? I have a very hard time listening to myself talk, so. I also have a hard time listening to you. <laughs> But I do it so that I can hear my half of the show. <laughs> I listened for your half of the show, too. But wait a minute. We, at a certain point, I think we've discussed the process. You know, we yammer at each other. We send it off to be transcribed. We do a little editing, and our fantastic producer, Margaret Miller, does. And we will edit on paper. Then Zach McNeese puts it together for us. And then at some point, don't you listen to it all in order to see what notes you want to give on the further cut? Yeah, and I'll sometimes do, I'll bring it into Pro Tools. And the problem is that everyone except for me is a little more generous with letting me talk on the show. And so then before we put it out, usually I'll get Zach's edit and I'll go through and cut more of myself out. Uh, and no, it, trust me, it's better that way. Um, but so I, I don't have a favorite episode of the podcast. And have you had a favorite guest, if you don't mind the follow-up one? <clears throat> well, <laughs> it's a dead tie. I would, I would have pointed at Marley as one of my favorites, but she and Jack pulled off an insanely cruel practical joke when we had them that we shared with you on the episode. So she plummets right to the, my very least favorite guest that we've had. And this guy's always pretty good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Nice, nice cover. I have another question. You're next. Oh, okay. I'm going to... My, my question comes with a clip. This is a, a question for Jack, actually. For me? Yes. Um, there's... A question for me. Uh-oh. <laughs> is yes. he allowed? Yes, it's allowed. <laughs> I mean, I said it's allowed. So, <laughs> in this said, episode... I said it's allowed. No. <laughs> <laughs> What's the question? In this episode, there's a lot of simultaneous translation that's happening with the interpreter who's um, translating for the Russian president. He's in the same room as President Bartlett, and he um, has to translate. And frequently, he interrupts the president. The inter interpreter is interrupting President Bartlett with President Chagorin's comments. And I was wondering if that, to you, felt like accurate protocol. If the person you are translating or interpreting for is interrupting the person, would you actually do if that it's yourself? For clarification, yes. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, I uh, I never have to interrupt uh, because then it would take the whole situation out of what it, the context. But uh, sometimes interpreters will interrupt for clarification, obviously. Um, he does that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. Um, but I also allow myself to be corrected. I, I have no problem being corrected in public if I'm doing something wrong. So uh, that's just a good interpreter tries to stay right down the middle. And I, I would conjecture to say that um, when you're talking to the Russian premier or, or president, that you want to know when they interrupt you. Like the president and Leo would want to know when he's getting upset. You know, remember the president kept saying, he's yelling really loud at Leo right now. <laughs> That's behavior. And you want to interpret the behavior, or I would, want to, I would want to know what the behavior is. And the minute he starts to speak is more important to me than if I was interrupted. 
there is a point with interpreters that I've seen oftentimes that work in diplomatic circles where they're just giving words. They're not giving emotions. With this person here, I have to be her. I, but yet I can't be me, but I can't be too much her. So there's a really, interpreters walk a really fine, I mean, if we're on a talk show, I can't let any space be there. I can't put in you knows. I've heard interpreters say, you know, you know, you know, you know. And you, you cannot do that. But it's such a fine line. It's, it's really a, a tough one to walk. But we've been doing this for 32 years. So it's, Jack um, is probably one of the most wonderful, handsome men I've ever had to work with. <laughs> And he likes to hear himself say that. <laughs> I'm really curious, though, about that line where you said, I can't be her too much. No, because, the, it be, well, obviously, since I'm a male voice and she's a woman, but it, it, there, I, people have said that I do a good job of making them believe that I'm her, yet I'm a guy talking for her. And I guess that must mean because I express her. But I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense or not what I just said, but that's what it, how it works. That does make sense. I, I, one of the things I really like in the portrayal of the interpreter played by Robert Allen Buth, I'm not sure how, how to say his name, but, but I, I like the way that his delivery, he, he doesn't quite leave this even-keeled sort of cadence, even as he's trying to express the more animated feelings of the Russian president here. I'm, I'm going to play this little clip. Mr. President. Peter. Unless there was a typhoon. I understand. I meant he's yelling at me pretty loud now. But he's, of course, not yelling, but he still raises his voice. That balance, I think, is such an interesting and, and tricky one to try and strike. Get dramatic. He gets dramatic. Jack sometimes gets dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, I think we have time for one more question, and it goes to you. There are many wonderful relationships on the West Wing, and I'm just wondering, what's your favorite relationship on the show? Mine was with the medic. What? What? <laughs> Me. Yes. Yeah, you yeah. and Josh? It's a good one. It's definitely one of our favorites. Yeah. We talked about it as such, yeah. I wish, about... it had more, I wish it had gotten more screen time, honestly. Yeah, we, should, we wish it had developed more. Yeah, me too. Uh, although, but, what's your favorite? Well, I, I kept getting pregnant was the problem that Marley said <laughs> in real life. So. What's your name? Uh, Claire. Claire? Um, the president and Charlie. President yes. Charlie. Very and, good. Uh, good. Oh, look, you got applause. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, Marley said Mrs. Lanningham and, and the president. And also good. I think the only reason why the lack of screen time between Joey and Josh was a little bit mitigated was because she was so obviously out of his league the entire time that you, you <laughs> never felt like it was going to go anywhere. Too good for him. Yeah. <laughs> it never really worked. Thank you. My name's Tanya, and I was press secretary to Tony Blair and had, and had the enormous pleasure of hosting John Spencer when he came to Downing Street when he was doing a premiere of the show and had this curious experience of having to write a brief for our chief of staff to meet the best chief of staff in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he turned to me and said, so you're kind of like CJ. And it was like, I wish I had Aaron Sorkin. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Thanks so much to our guests for joining us. Jack Jason and Marley Matlin. The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia. You can find out about the other great Radiotopia podcasts at radiotopia.fm. We'd like to thank Richard Schiff for being our guest tonight. We'd like to thank Margaret Miller and Zach McNeese for their work on the podcast. We'd like to thank everybody at Vicker Street. We'd like to thank the good people of the Billions. Corporation, company. yep. 
and uh, Andrew Morgan and everybody at AEG. We are going to be out later selling some merch, or I think in Gaelic it's merch. <laughs> what else do we usually say at the end? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Radiotopia. From PRX. Big thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.